keep your Bible open there. We'll also be, uh, it's quite a long passage, as you'll know, if you uh, were in growth group this week. The passage actually begins at chapter 9, verse 30, and goes all the way through to where we ended. Uh, so you may have to flick back a page backwards and forwards. Uh, I do, uh, in my Bible. Uh, it's a, a long passage, uh, but quite cohesive. Uh, there's a fairly consistent theme that runs through it all. And uh, actually, uh, it's quite clear from the way that Mark has arranged uh, his material that uh, this passage hangs together. Uh, what I mean by that is that it begins and ends with uh, very um, sy- uh, symmetrical accounts. Uh, so uh, in chapter 9, verse 30... And you can see this in the heading if you've got an NIV. Uh, Jesus talks about his coming death. Uh, That's followed by the disciples talking about greatness. And then that's followed by Jesus talking about true greatness. That's how the passage begins. And then uh, again in what we just read from chapter 10 verse 32, it's exactly the same pattern. So Jesus talks about what lies up ahead in Jerusalem for him, what's going to happen in his death and his resurrection. Two of the disciples come to him and uh, you know, request positions of honour and privilege, greatness. And then Jesus talks to the disciples about the nature of true greatness. Uh, when you see a pattern like that, repeated like that, it's no accident And I think the way that uh, Mark has arranged his material, the idea here is that everything in between those two sections is meant to be read uh, through a lens or a filter, uh, the lens or filter that those two symmetrical passages uh, give us. Everything in between is about greatness. In fact, everything in between is about correcting misunderstandings of greatness and replacing them with knowledge of what true greatness is in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus. So it's almost like uh, those, those two symmetrical passages act like a, a red filter. Well, it doesn't matter what colour it is, but a filter that when you see through it, everything that you see through it is seen uh, in light of those two passages. So that's where we're heading. Hopefully that's a, a help and not a hindrance for you in understanding this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust that your word is, uh, every part of it is useful for us, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So we ask that uh, where we need to be taught, teach us. Where we need to be corrected or rebuked, please soften our hearts to receive that correction or rebuke. And we pray that you would train us in righteousness because clearly that is your desire for us and this passage is helpful for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, does anyone here remember Mr. Squiggle? Yes, yes, I thought so. Uh, you know, some of you would have had children, I think, around the time that Mr. Squiggle was uh, on television. I was only little and Mr. Squiggle was on television, one of my favourite uh, shows to watch. If you're unfamiliar, let me uh, just describe it for you very, very briefly. It was only a short show, one of those sort of, I think, five or ten minute kind of programs on the ABC, and uh, Mr Squiggle was a little marionette puppet uh, with a pencil for a nose, 
And every, uh, every episode, Mr. Squiggle would draw a picture. Um, but the way that he drew his picture, obviously with his nose, uh, was uh, there were dots on the page with the odd line or two that might be connecting them. And it was always a mystery at the beginning what it was going to be a picture of. Uh, and Mr. Mr. Squiggle would set to with his pencil nose and start joining the dots and uh, in a way that only he knew was going to produce uh, the image at the end. And his uh, kind of sidekick uh, in the show was Miss Jane. Miss Jane. And Miss Jane was always talking with Mr. Squiggle, what's it going to be, Mr. Squiggle? I can't work it out. And then at some point, uh, you know, when he was done with the work and she still couldn't work it out, almost every episode, I think, at least every episode I remember, she would say, upside down, Miss Jane, upside down. <laughs> and she would have to turn it up the right way. And lo and behold, there was the image. Now, I think that uh, in this passage, Jesus uh, is, he has a Mr. Squiggle moment uh, with his disciples. Uh, he connects the dots, he draws a picture, and then he flips their notion of greatness upside down. They can't see it, and he has to connect the dots and explain it all to them. So in today's passage, uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples are drawing closer to Jerusalem. Uh, there's various time markers uh, in the passage uh, from that first verse, chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place and they passed through Galilee. Chapter 10, verse 1, they entered Judea. Chapter 10, verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Right? So clearly there is now progress being made. You might remember up until this point, Jesus has been spending all his time up north, away from Jerusalem, quite intentionally. He's been keeping at a distance because he doesn't want to, uh, in a sense, be discovered. But now uh, he's very intentionally changing his pattern and he's making a beeline for Jerusalem. And uh, that is very intentional. Jesus knows what awaits him there. He goes to Jerusalem as the Messiah to claim his kingdom. Now, this fact isn't lost on the twelve. They know too, to some extent. Remember, they've worked out Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised king, and they know that Jerusalem is where the king lives, where the king has his throne, uh, and they are going along for the ride. And at this point, they're starting to think, wow, what's in this for us? And they're getting their hopes up about that. Like uh, a pack of seagulls after hot chips... They begin to jostle for position, hoping to share in Jesus' glory. See, the disciples, like, uh, well, like most of us, really, uh, they're grasping for greatness. Now, uh, this, it starts, oddly enough, uh, after Jesus, for a second time, explains his coming death and resurrection. You wouldn't think that was a, an obvious time to start grasping at greatness, to start saying, oh, I want what you've got. <laughs> um, but there it is. And uh, even though it seems pretty clear from our vantage point, still the disciples uh, are still not making sense of it. They do have an inkling that great things are about to take place, though, and they want to be right in the thick of it. See, they're getting used to the idea that they are the Messiahs in a circle. 
And that's true. That's true enough. He's chosen them to be with him. And they're starting to think, whoa, what's going to come of this? But it's funny how even being in the inner circle is not enough for them. Uh, We read in chapter 9, verse 34, that they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Uh, No doubt Jesus knows what they've been talking about, but he asks the question anyway, what were you arguing about on the road? They seem to have some idea that their conversation has been inappropriate and so they keep quiet about what it was because they've been arguing about who among them was the greatest. Now it's hard to know exactly how that conversation would have went, whether it was a case of each one of the 12 voting for themselves, you know, uh, putting forward their own credentials for being the greatest. We've just heard last week about how Peter, James and John were pulled aside by Jesus and taken up the mountain and had that uh, special experience. No doubt they could have rolled that out as a reason for their uh, claim to be the greatest. Perhaps Judas might have said, well, he's put me in charge of the money. I'm the treasurer, you know, that's, that's kind of in the executive. Uh, perhaps he's got a case there. Andrew, Andrew, who's not mentioned all that much in the Gospels, but was one of the first two called... Perhaps he could have put his hand up and said, oh, that's surely worth something. So maybe they were all just kind of claiming that honour for themselves or perhaps there were some voting blocks going on. You know, there were those who followed Peter and those who followed John, maybe. We we don't know exactly. What we do know is that uh, they had that desire for themselves to be great. Um, But what we can say is that Jesus clearly senses the danger of the situation, the danger for his disciples. Uh, And rather than settling the dispute by naming one of them as the greatest or the leader, and rather than just kind of giving them a whack over the head or banging their heads together and saying, that's enough of that, uh, he, he turns their whole notion of greatness upside down. So he doesn't condemn their desire for greatness and I think that's actually really important for us to see he doesn't want to dampen their enthusiasm for greatness he wants to direct their enthusiasm to a true appreciation of greatness and so in chapter 9 verse 35 we read Jesus called the 12 and he said to them this anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all And really, there you have it in a nutshell. It's the ethic of the kingdom. And you can easily get a sense of how contrary that idea, that concept, that ethic is to the way our world works. It doesn't make any sense. It's contrary to sense, isn't it? If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. It makes no sense in this world. But to Jesus and in his kingdom, it's the only thing that makes sense. And I think the rest of the passage, as I said, those parts of the passage that sit in between these two bookends, are really all about uh, the nature of false greatness or greatness in this world versus the nature of greatness in Jesus' kingdom. Uh, And what we see as we look at all the little bits and pieces in between 
is that the desire for worldly greatness divides. The desire for worldly greatness divides. But true greatness unites. So let me show you uh, some of the places that we see this. One we've already seen, and that is that as they walked along the road and talked about who would be the greatest, the conversation didn't go, oh, Peter, you're just amazing. You know, I reckon, I reckon you're the greatest. Oh, no, I mean, thanks, Bartholomew, but really I've seen some of the things you do and I think you're the greatest. You know, that's not how it went, was it? They argued. They argued about who would be the greatest or who was the greatest. See, that desire to put yourself above others leads to conflict. It divides. Uh, a little further on, uh, there's this episode in, from verse 38 where the disciples relate to Jesus that they've seen some people who they don't even know, it seems, casting out demons in the name of Jesus and they told them to stop. And their reason for that is because he was not one of us. The guy who was doing this, he wasn't one of us. He wasn't qualified. But Jesus actually says, no, no, no. No, don't think that it's only you guys who belong in my kingdom. Don't think it's only you guys who can do my work. If he was doing it in my name, well, then let him go for it. Okay? Because he's doing it not in his own name. He's not doing it for himself, but he's doing it in my name. So let him do it, says Jesus. But the disciples, it seems, want to keep that glory for themselves. And so a desire for greatness, worldly greatness, causes uh, jealousy and exclusion. Uh, even the passage in chapter 10 from verse 1 to, uh, 1 to 12, or 2 to 12, about divorce, I think again is an example that we're meant to see in its context as being about the abuse of power or greatness. See, in a marriage, the husband is called to be the head of the relationship. Now, there's two things you can do with that. You can use your authority to lord it over your wife, to demand, to be demanding, to take, or you can do what was intended by God and become a servant of your wife to take the initiative and the lead in loving and serving your wife for her good. I think that's actually what's going on here. See, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus, as he often does, answers with a question, throws it back on them, says, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of of divorce and send her away. Just a bit of paperwork, and off she goes. But Jesus says, well, maybe, but why? Why was that permitted? It's because your hearts were hard, and that's why. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh No longer two, but one. God's joined them together. So let no one separate them. See, I think 
uh, and then, sorry, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And I think what's going on there is that anyone who, any man who divorces his wife in order to marry another woman commits adultery against her. See, it's this idea that you can just get out of it with a sign of the pen and move on to the next and leave that wife you promised yourself to behind or that husband you promised yourself to behind that Jesus is speaking against here. The abuse of power, the abuse of authority, the abuse of greatness, if you like. And again, it has the impact of dividing what shouldn't be divided that's what divorce is. Uh, in chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, again, in this theme of how uh, worldly greatness actually causes division or the pursuit of worldly greatness, we read in the middle of the parable of the uh, rich man who says no to Jesus because he can't say no to his wealth. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see, this, it's this man's greatness. It's his wealth, it's his prosperity that actually keeps him out of God's kingdom. He can't let go of it. It has too much of a hold on him. And so it divides, it separates him from salvation, from his Lord, from Jesus. It disqualifies him. In fact, he's achieved all that this world aspires to and yet can't access the greatest thing as a result. Uh, Back in chapter 10, verse 13, we read again of the disciples who think they have access to Jesus and others shouldn't. And so, verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. (sighs) Don't... Don't bother the teacher. Don't bring your children to Jesus. He's a very busy man. Keep them away. They don't belong here. But Jesus is indignant with them. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You see, the disciples have this concept of who matters and who doesn't and it's certainly not the children in their mind. But Jesus corrects them. He rebukes them. Once again, worldly greatness has that potential to divide things that shouldn't be divided. And worldly greatness, uh, in fact, invites the judgment of God as a result. So chapter 9, verse 42, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. See, Anyone who, whose concept of greatness causes somebody else to stumble, anyone who thinks, well, I'm in but you're out, or causes them to stumble in any other way, invites the judgment of God. Grasping for greatness has all sorts of problems attached to it. But true greatness has the opposite effect. True greatness actually has the power to draw people in and to unite. Firstly, 
we see that in chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, where we see uh, Jesus say, He took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In other words, it's as we welcome one another, as we welcome even those who the world doesn't put great value on, that we are welcoming the one who loves them as well. We're welcoming Jesus and the one who sent him, the Father. Uh, Becoming a servant to others putting ourselves out that others might be included, welcoming those of little account, unites us not only to those people, but also to Jesus and to the Father. And so uh, to true greatness, which is in Jesus' terms, becoming the servant of all, has the power to include others. Verses uh, 30, uh, we just saw that in verse 37. And again, uh, in chapter 10, verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, that is, the disciples rejecting the children, and he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And again, uh, contrary to the effect of worldly greatness and pursuing worldly greatness, true greatness receives its due reward as well. Chapter 9, verse 41, Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. See, throughout the passage, Mark is connecting the dots uh, for us to expose the ugliness of selfish ambition and to draw a picture of true greatness. But as we're getting used to now, uh, the disciples are once again slow to learn. For a third time at the end of the passage, uh, Jesus tells the disciples what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. But whatever the disciples are thinking about that, two of them, James and John, are still keen for greatness, still keen for glory. They want the places of honour beside Jesus. Jesus is incredibly uh, patient with his disciples. He lets them down gently And then he calls all his disciples together to have one last crack at explaining greatness in his kingdom. Chapter 10, verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's how they do it. That's what greatness looks like to them. But not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And why? Here's the rationale Jesus gives. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember who the Son of Man is? 
the one who comes before the Ancient of Days and is bestowed with all glory and honour and power. And Jesus says that he is that one, and yet even he has come not to be served, but to serve, and to serve at great cost, to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus says, if that's the nature of the king, then that's to be the nature of the kingdom. And everyone in it. Now, I want to finish with some bad news and some good news. What do you want first? Um, (laughs) That's actually all good news. Uh, It just might sound like bad news at first. The bad news is that I think this passage tells us something that we don't really want to hear, some of us, perhaps. And that is that it is almost impossible, if not impossible, to be great in the world's eyes and great in the eyes of Jesus. Did you pick that up? That's really what's going on with that rich man, isn't it? I mean, there, his particular issue is money. But it doesn't matter what your particular issue is. If the world esteems you, there is every chance that Jesus will not. Because the world doesn't share the values of Jesus. It doesn't see greatness like Jesus does. It measures it very differently. In the eyes of the world, you've got to perform, you've got to achieve, you've got to show that you're better than others. And true greatness is only for the select few. In the world... Greatness is measured in accolades and achievements. It's measured in dollars and records and um, letters after your name. But those things don't count for anything in the kingdom of Jesus. So if you're someone who is drawn to greatness, if you're someone who even in your own little world, perhaps, is pursuing recognition and greatness. It's time to give it up. Well and truly time to see it for what it really is. It's, it's a counterfeit. And instead, to grasp for true greatness. Not to reject greatness at all, but to grasp for true greatness. And here's the good news. It's very hard to be great in this world, in reality. But in the kingdom of Jesus, anyone can be great. Anyone can be great. You don't have to have a great body and physical aptitude. You don't have to have a brilliant mind. You don't have to be successful in any human measure. Because in the kingdom of Jesus... Greatness isn't measured in the same way. Greatness is measured in acts of service, inspired by love. Even just a cup of water we read, given in love, is applauded by Jesus. A kind word is great, is greatness. A hurt forgiven. A meal cooked and delivered a person remembered in prayer these are things you can do 
And these are things that Jesus considers truly great. They're the kind of thing that no one else may ever notice. But Jesus does. He doesn't miss a thing. And he promises that this kind of greatness will be duly acknowledged. You know those words from Matthew 25? Well done, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful what? Servant. See, that's who Jesus praises. And I want to put a special plug in here before I finish for a particular way of serving that seems to be very close to the heart of Jesus. See, the reason uh, that Jesus keeps referring to children is because children, back then at least, were seen as less important, of little value. Children lived on the margins of society. But Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. I think that still applies to children, but I also think that it applies to anyone who lives on the margins of society, who for whatever reason is generally unwelcome. Think of Jesus' own ministry. Who did he spend time with? The poor and the sick, the fringe dwellers and the bottom dwellers. He was notorious for hanging out with the rejects and welcoming them into his kingdom. Jesus, in fact, told the chief priests, right? the chief priests, he said this to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering heaven ahead of you. Now, do you share the attitude of Jesus? Because Jesus also said, If you love those who love you, big deal. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you, said Jesus. See, this idea of being a servant doesn't let you operate in your comfortable circle. Because when you do that, there's a sense in which you're actually serving yourself. I mean, serving anyone is good, but the greater service is done where it makes the least worldly sense, where there's no real connection, no personal benefit. In fact, where there might even be awkwardness or the possibility of rejection, but where there's also the possibility of helping someone enter the kingdom of heaven through your unlikely welcome, through your generous friendship. Now, any time is a good time to reach out with the welcome of Jesus. So why not start today? And what I mean is there is a good chance that there are people here today who feel less welcome, less comfortable and less like they belong than you do. So ask yourself, who would Jesus go to this morning? When we finish singing our last song, who would Jesus go to? And because he's not here, but you are, Go in his name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that Jesus turns our faulty views upside down and inside out. We get told all the time what kinds of things equal greatness. And it's just not true. It has the ring of truth, but it's not true. 
We hear it so often, we believe it. We believe all the world's measures of greatness. Father, instead, by your Spirit, help us to believe what is true, what Jesus says greatness looks like. In fact, it doesn't just say greatness looks like, but reveals greatness looks like on the cross when the Son of Man served us by giving his life as a ransom, paying our debt, setting us free. Father, if that's what he did for us, if he became our servant, then please help us to have the blinkers torn off, torn off from our eyes so that we might see and uh, live in a way that matches the greatness of Jesus or at least aspires to, to be like him. And to do that not for ourselves or for any great reward, but because we just see the need and we love like Jesus. Make us servants of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.